Hello, and welcome to the Don't Shop on Tuesday podcast. We're your hosts, Jacob and Barry. Today, we're joined by activist, author, and public interest advocate, James Browning. Previously, he's worked for multiple years at Common Cause as a regional director of state operations and as the communications director of Global Energy Monitor, where he created the Fossil Fuel Lobbyist List. Currently, James is serving as the founder and executive director of F-, which has built the first publicly available database tracking state-level fossil fuel lobbyists and linking them to their non-fossil fuel clients. Using these data, F- pushes for the disinvestment of fossil fuel lobbyists. Welcome, James. Thank you. It's great to be here. So at DSOT, we focus on the outsized and corrupting influence of money in politics and how it can hijack government's ability and even inclination to represent the people's interests. Obviously, lobbying one's government in general is not anti-democratic activity. However, the access to and the actions of professional lobbyists with elected officials can look very different compared to the access of average citizens. So how do you find that these, in your research and your work, these differences manifest in the day-to-day life of a lobbyist in a capital like, say, Annapolis, where we're, you know, in Maryland, where we're located, from that of, say, a volunteer of an environmental activist? And how's that problematic to our representative democracy? That's a a great question. And it's interesting to look at uh, the way Annapolis um, works and what is the life of a, a corporate lobbyist, an oil and gas lobbyist, let's say, versus the life of an unpaid citizen activist who's who's come to Annapolis. And you know the the way this system should work, uh, our democracy is everyone um, should have a say. There's you know a public hearing where both sides get to testify and it goes into the record. And if you're a citizen activist and you come to Annapolis and you tell you know, a great uh, story about what it is, you know, like, you know, living next to, it could be, you know, a coal terminal in Baltimore, it could be a pipeline being dug somewhere in Maryland, that can be a very powerful thing. And you can capture the committee's imagination, you can capture the public's imagination, you can be in the news the next day. But the problem is that those citizen, you know, activists, a lot of them then have to go home and it's important to look at okay well what what happens then well what what happens is that delegates and senators in Annapolis spend most of their time kind of holed up with corporate lobbyists or you know being taken out to lunch and dinner and baseball games by them or getting gifts from them or getting campaign contributions from them or you know, since the Citizens United decision took a wrecking ball to our campaign finance system, you know, they can even help coordinate with other kinds of political expenditures like super PACs and dark money, all of which can be used to you know, fight for their side, which is often the fossil fuel side of things or threaten their opponents. So that's a really unbelievable arsenal that they have at their disposal versus people on the other side who may have the power of the truth and they may have the power of, of numbers on their side. But for an elected official looking at how do I get reelected, how do I get the money to get reelected, there is there is every temptation to go with the corporate lobbyist and the fossil fuel um, people. So part of what F- does is point out how seriously compromised these lobbyists are, and especially on climate. And this is what we found in 
Maryland, we found lobbyists working for coal and oil and gas interests on the one hand, and then on the other hand, people who are suffering from the climate crisis or you know, institutions like Johns Hopkins, which have done some good things on climate, they divested from coal, but their own lobbyists are the worst of the worst when it comes to perpetuating the climate crisis. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Hopkins here and how they made a pledge to divest from coal investments, I believe, in 2017. And yet through your research at F-, you've identified, I think, at least nine different lobbyists uh, that are simultaneously employed by the university and also represent, you know, interest groups that are diametrically opposed to some of the pledges that the university has made. How is this argued to not be a conflict of interest for lobbyists to, you know, represent both of these seemingly mutually exclusive interests? Antithetical. Antithetical. So the the conflict uh, of interest bar when it comes to lobbyists is is very, very low. Uh, Basically, you're not allowed to lobby for and against the same piece of legislation but when it comes to subject area and regulated. So who is going to vet if there is a conflict? Well, it's the lobbying uh, firm itself, and, and they decide. And this is where it's important to note the distinction between lobbyists and lawyers. And many of these conflicts or you know multiple relationships that these lobbying firms have would never pass muster at at a law firm, but lobbyists are allowed to get away with it. And and again, you know, if you're a small group without a lot of resources, you don't you don't spend a lot of time in Annapolis. You're not a you're not a professional politico. You understandably like you you want help. You want a powerful voice in Annapolis. And if some powerful lobbyist tells you like it's good, it's not a conflict for us to take you on. There is there is every temptation to go with that. So this this is where you know, Hopkins participating, Johns Hopkins participating in this corrupt scheme is especially galling because they do have the resources to do better and they they know better. They know how this system works. And if, if they ever looked at these lobbyists or their clients and thought, well, what what is the harm of our lobbyist also, you know, working with the American Petroleum Institute? Are we going to get in trouble I imagine the answer was no. Well, they they are in trouble now, and people are going to know about this, and their donors are going to know about this, and their students are going to know about this, and perhaps most importantly to Johns Hopkins, Michael Bloomberg is going to know about this. Now, he has been a global leader in the fight to get us off coal power, and so it's really extraordinary to see Hopkins, yes, they divested uh, from coal, but they have lobbyists who work for, for coal interests. So that's just, that's just insupportable. And there's, there's no way for Hopkins to explain that to Michael Bloomberg. James, you bring up some excellent issues. And we've talked in the past at DSOT about the wealthiest corporations and people making public policy. And, you know, this is one instance, but lobbying just is not just in Annapolis and the state capitals and the United States Congress. They're quote unquote friends. They even beyond going to fundraisers, they hang out with legislators. They, you know, they, they make them friends and they, and they spend a lot of time with them 
when the legislature is not in session. And then a, I've worked on all three levels of government, and I've found people serving in, at each level saying lobbyists know best. They are the ones coming here with, with, with the information, and too often they help write the legislation. That's right. They're, they're writing the legislation, and you know they're in a position to uh, keep people who oppose them, oppose their bills from, from being reelected by directing campaign cash their way. You know, I was also uh, a lobbyist in Delaware for a while. Well, there's there's a really extraordinary lobbyist there named Bobby Bird, and he's been described as the consummate insider. And he even helped write the state's lobbyist disclosure laws, which perversely required lobbyists to disclose gifts that they were getting. You know, so you look at these reports, and you might see them, you know, getting you know thirty dollars of you know, crab cakes or, you know, going to like a, a stock car race in Delaware, but it didn't require lobbyists to disclose how much money they're making from different corporations. And that's where the real, that's where the real disparity um, is, you know, instead of it being, you know, like 50 to zero in terms of gifts, you know, given by corporate lobbyists versus a citizen activist, the real number is more like, you know, $300,000 to like to $10,000, because that's how much was spent on salaries on, on opposite sides of a bill. So what's, what's extraordinary now about Bobby Bird, he's, he's written a memoir about his success in Delaware. One of the lines from the memoir is that vice has been very good to me, where he very honestly says that working for tobacco companies and fossil fuel companies and other very questionable enterprises has brought him a lot of money over time. You know, so so he's doing that for these corporate interests. At the same time, he represents an association of dozens and dozens of nonprofits in Delaware, many of whom are focused on the climate crisis or, you know, for whom conservation and the environment are one of their main priorities. So so what in the world are these nonprofit groups doing sharing a lobbyist with the co-companies who Bird also represents? And, you know, not only is it is it bad for them, it, it's it's dangerous for people trying to fight the Cokes because it legitimizes this messenger of, of the Cokes, you know, all these other groups. And it, it's not and it's not just these nonprofit groups who are, you know, doing this, it's all kinds of very good organizations, you know, could be hospitals, schools, who are essentially giving their good name, giving their credibility to these very malign lobbyists. And it's just, it's a very dangerous thing. I'll I'll share another example from Annapolis, where I was uh, a lobbyist for the American Cancer Society for a while, working uh, for a bill to ban smoking in bars and restaurants in Maryland, and so would meet with lobbyists in both parties, from the far left to the far right. And you know what's interesting about lobbying on cancer as an issue is that you know cancer is doesn't distinguish by political party, and so you know, many people have a personal experience. It could be themselves, could be a friend, could be their family. And so you know you go into these meetings, and Barry, this this speaks to your point about getting quality time with these people. You, you go into these meetings, and it could be the most far-right person in the legislature, but you talk to them about cancer, and it could be someone in their, their family had cancer, someone in my family had cancer, and now you have a real connection. And you may disagree on everything else, but now you, you see each other as, like, as real people, and there's a real relationship there. And so that's where 
you know, having this kind of quality time is really important. But also, you know, <laughs> I want to bring this back to fossil fuels. And I, I hate to say this, but the American Cancer Society is is a group that popped up dozens of times on our F minus list because they share lobbyists with fossil fuel companies. And we need to do outreach with them. But the question for the American Cancer Society is these lobbyists are peddling carcinogenic products on behalf of their other clients. You know, how can you give them money? How can you, you know, give them the American Cancer Society seal of approval? As you've been doing this research and creating this database at, at F minus and identifying all of these connections between and you know, interests that these lobbyists are representing, have you found that in general, the organizations, you know, working around environment, or as you were just talking about the American cancer, you know, lobbying around cancer, are they aware of the conflicts of interest here? Is the, is the sort of disinfecting power of sunlight, you know, a major step along this process for these organizations, or are they already aware that they've sort of made this proverbial deal with the devil? Right. I, I think, Jacob, one answer to your question is in a state capital, there are so many, so many different kinds of devils, and you're always trying to make a deal with a lesser devil that honestly, and this is, this is again, where these, these groups, we, we don't want to like excoriate them. We don't want to condemn them. We want to like educate them and urge them to do better. It, it, it is easy to lose sight of, of how of how devilish and dangerous it is to work with these with these lobbyists. You know this this idea uh, for F minus started really twenty years ago in Annapolis again on the the smoking issue because there was a lobbyist Larry Levitan who was on the right side of the smoking issue. He worked for the American Lung Association, but at the same time, he worked for the Maryland Automobile Dealers Association, who was opposed to, you know, for example, bills to limit automobile emissions. And so people asked him, how do you square these things? Isn't that a conflict? And his answer was, no, it's fine because cigarettes are indoor air and automobiles are outdoor <laughs> air. And that is, that is the core problem here that people go to these lobbyists and they have, you know, some, you know, very targeted, you know, smaller, you know, issue. Like we want to preserve this patch of green space in our community. You know, we're concerned about, you know, this river, this endangered species. Those are all great, you know, causes. But if if the deal is that you you preserve that little bit of green space, but then you empower these lobbyists and these companies to make the planet uninhabitable it wasn't it wasn't worth it right there there has to be there has to be a better approach and i i can share you know so why hasn't this been done before or why hasn't this been seen as a problem working with these uh, coal and oil and gas lobbyists the information has been out there for decades and insiders know that lobbyists have been playing both sides of environmental issues for decades. And I just, I want to say publicly on this podcast that I know a lot of fantastic activists and environmentalists in Maryland, and I have brought this list to them and we are working with some of them, but 
many of these people, people whose work I admire, their response has been, this is a great list. I'm glad you did this, but I can never talk about this because I will get in so much trouble at my job and so much trouble in Annapolis because you're not supposed to rock the boat. That's why we always find new strategies and different ways of of uniting protests. But I I really want to get to guns, but uh, you know I can't let this go by. You make the excellent point that the the quote unquote good guys clients burnish the reputation of the lobbyist and and their other clients, and a lot of legislators are have a lot of different professions. They're overwhelmed. They may be term limited. They have all these uh, bills that they have to deal with. And even the honest, the, the honest people trying to do a good job look to the lobbyists and then they, oh, well, you know, th- there's the Hopkins lobbyist or there's the UMMS lobbyist. You've already given them credence. That's right. You know, if, if your only client as a lobbyist is, you know, Exxon mobile, you're going to get a lot of doors closed in your face and you're going to be villainized by a lot of lobbyists. But let's say you also represent, you know, a hospital or a school or, you know, or a charity or an environmental group. Suddenly it's a different conversation and you're helping a legislator be a hero on healthcare in their district, be a hero for conservation or for children. And then it's very easy to overlook the fossil fuel side of it because the, the payoff is, is so big for the legislator, right? Like It's like, on the one hand, there's the vague, constant worry about the climate crisis versus you know, or I I get, I can denounce this lobbyist, right? Or Mm -hmm. I get to sponsor this bill, like building a hospital in my district. You know, I get to preserve this green space. I get campaign cash. Like I get to be the hero. So, so that's, that's how it happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think guns are really important to talk about, to explain that it's just not fossil fuels. So 10 years ago, a former colleague, uh, Ryan O'Donnell from Common Cause and I. Ryan was also the executive director in Common Cause Maryland. And I, I remember calling him on his first day at work and asking him, How, how's it going? And he says, it's good. I'm, I'm, at, I'm under my desk. I'm cowering and I don't know what to do. And I said, Ryan, that is, that is the right response because it is, it is an intimidating situation and you're going you're gonna to figure it out. But it is, it is natural to get into that that situation and and frankly to be afraid. So 10 years ago, Ryan and I worked on a similar project looking at gun lobbyists and this was right after the Sandy Hook massacre in Connecticut where more than 20 kids were killed and we were looking at gun lobbyists who also represented schools. And then we saw after Sandy Hook that there was a trend of gun lobbyists around the country taking on more schools as clients, mm. right? Which is, which is, that's just truly disgusting. What is, what is going on? Well, I think part of it is that they were inoculating themselves against the charge that they were insensitive about school shootings. And if you mm. also have schools as a client, now you're able to say, like I speak for the children. I speak, I speak for the trees, right? It's like, it's like the Lorax. I understand how to keep schools safe. Like don't, don't tell me how to keep schools safe. I represent the schools. And so again, that's, that's where 
it is it is tragic that schools or you know other groups and communities plagued by gun violence are working with these lobbyists who represent the gun industry because they are they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about seemingly in both with the fossil fuel industry as well as with the gun lobby that often many of these advocacy organizations, you know, sort of fighting the good fight often are aware of these conflicts of interest and some of the pitfalls, but seemingly feel sort of trapped by this this system in order to to play the game and and be heard. What do you in terms if it's if it's not just creating the list and you know providing it actively to individuals and to the public, what do you think uh, it takes and what are some of the steps to actually disrupt this dynamic of the, the lobbyists who are, you know, representing both groups. Right. You know, it, talking to groups who hire these lobbyists, it, it may be shocking to people to read our F-minus list and see some of the progressive groups on there, to see some of the cultural institutions, symphonies, ballets, art museums. And that, you know, could be very worrisome and making it seem like they are like hopelessly part of some corrupt scheme. But there's hope here, which is that these institutions have shame and they have donors and they have trustees and they have a public image that they have to maintain. And this is doable. It's very doable in the same way that activists successfully have gotten museums to stop taking fossil fuel donations. So you know, the, the hopeful thing here is we are talking to people often for whom, you know, facts still still matter and and reason still still matters. And it's it's like the beginning of any divestment campaign or pushing for change in some other marketplace. You know, it's like if you if you think of a just a, a supermarket and if people are sick of having food that's wrapped in plastic or, you know, sick of food that's full of chemicals, the store's never going to offer any alternatives until people demand change or until people stop spending their their money there. Or, you know, of course, on a larger scale, if you consider, you know, divestment from fossil fuels or, you know, not not giving your money to banks who are heavy into fossil fuels or not being part of investment funds that are heavy into fossil fuels, again, these like greener alternatives will not arise until um, people speak with their with their money. I mean, the thing we keep saying at F minus is we have to talk to these lobbyists in a language that they understand. And that language is, is money. You know, we, we can put out like fact sheets all day. We can talk all day at these committee hearings, but they're not going to, these, these lobbyists, you know, and I, I want to name names here. Like some of these fossil fuel lobbyists in Maryland are former democratic senators who, you know, Sometimes we're on the right side on climate in the legislature. And so it's former Senators Hogan, former Senator Graziola, former Senator Middleton. They have these fossil fuel clients. I I don't think they're going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? This climate crisis is so bad, right? The the choking smoke we had in the mid-Atlantic this summer, all of the other problems around climate, they're not going to wake up one morning and decide this climate crisis is so bad, I'm going to, I'm going to stop taking these checks from the American Petroleum Institute, right? right. That's not going to happen. They're, they're, only going to, they're only going to do the right thing when the rest of us economically force them to do the right thing, and that is getting their other clients to fire them. Martin Luther King Jr. said, carry an economic cudgel. 
And it's my job to be the cynic here, but you also in, in, in areas which are laboratories for ideas and protests, there is back in, to schools and libraries and universities. So we have to be doubly diligent that these areas which teach people to think and, and to stand up. And you're right, there are students, there are trustees, there's donors. And we have to also push back elected officials who are trying to shut down public debate and conversation and books. Well, I'm glad you brought up libraries because the Enoch Pratt Free Library is on our list. And I mean, what a wonderful institution. I've I've spent time there. What an incredible resource for the public. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing? I mean, this, this <laughs> runs totally counter to the interests um, of your own, your own people. You know, I, I want to share an experience with lobbying some of the groups participating in this scheme, and that's the National Resources Defense Council, who our list found working with fossil fuel lobbyists in three states last year. And once we put the list together, I wanted to, you know, be kind of courteous about this and give them a a chance to explain what was going on. So I reached out to them. They didn't get back to me. And then I remembered that my mother is a major donor to NRDC. And so, you know, with her permission, I contacted their development department. My mother was giving them $10,000 a year and raised this question, you know, why why are you working with fossil fuel lobbyists? And now they were like my new best friends. They were emailing me constantly. They were calling me constantly. What can we do? What can we do to solve this problem? Right? So I'm, I'm sorry to say this is how it worked in this case or how it often works, but just preventing the facts, it didn't do very much. It didn't do anything. Raising the specter of losing $10,000 a year, that got their attention. So if there were 100, 500, 1,000 people doing that, eventually the organization would have to change. You, uh, one, one last question here. You have brought up how these lobbyists are often, and it's been discussed how these lobbyists are often looked for for you know, expertise and representation, both for friend, uh, you know, as friendship and also as institutional knowledge on sort of issue areas, which perhaps they aren't the best advocates for. As simultaneously, for instance, in Baltimore, we've recently seen a charter amendment, which is implementing term limits in terms of, you know, in terms of elected officials, as well as you'll, you know, you can see staff cuts, you know, and reduction of staffing. So, how does the fa- how does this sort of play into this overall power dynamic uh, between lobbyists uh, and the, and the interests that they represent and the ability of elected officials to actually parse through and do their best job in terms of representing? And may may I interject something before you say it? The the charter amendment was funded by the person who owns Sinclair Television. And it is reported he spent a half a million dollars to get this charter amendment passed. You know, term limits, I think, are a cure worse than the, the disease if the disease is too much power for incumbents and too little turnover in our elected bodies. I mean, so how did how did we get to this point, right? Like there's supposed there's supposed to be competitive elections and sort of or thriving debate and democracy and new ideas and new people coming up. But, you know, and this is this is very true in, in Maryland, even though it's such a democratic state, but it's so hierarchical. The Democrats at the, at the top control the, the money that you've really got to be oftentimes part of the machine to see your career advance. So that's how we get, I think, locked into 
machine politics. And so, you know, it, I, it's, it is understandable that people get frustrated and want to just have term limits, but it's, it's very, very dangerous. And I think that they might be accurately labeled, you know, the, the make lobbyists more powerful because that's, that's what it does. It, it takes a long time to figure out what is what is going on, whether it's a city council or Annapolis, and to start to get enough of a kind of power base to make a difference or gain expertise on issues. And if you're term limited out, then people, you know, constituents are, are always starting from zero with a new person. You know, who is still there? Well, it's it's the lobbyists, and they end up running running the show if if you if you term limit the elected officials that just gives even more power to the lobbyists and it's it's important to note how uh, poorly paid most state legislators are in in New Mexico they make zeros a year in many states out west they might only make like 60 or 80 dollars a year and so you're just and they're they're poorly staffed they're poorly resourced and so it's it's just term limits just give even more power to the lobbyists yeah, and uh, that poor pay and staffing is especially concerning where, as we've discussed throughout this, the language of money is often, you know, and the relationships that that creates is often so much of what ends up driving uh, our politics. Well, James, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This has been uh, a fantastic, interesting, eye-opening, and hopefully with some level of uh, strategy and the work that you're doing, hopeful uh, conversation for the future. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time. And uh, until next time, everyone, don't shop on Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at don'tshoponTuesday at gmail.com. You can find out more about the movement at don'tshoponTuesday.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash don'tshoponTuesday. And you can follow our Instagram at don'tshoponTuesday. You can ask Jacob and Maxwell that I constantly say, ABC, always be closing, and the best story wins. It's it's so true because, you know, it's not enough to be uh, right or it's not enough to have the facts on your side if people don't remember uh, what you're saying or they don't remember the facts. So, you know, a lot of what we've tried to do with F- is solve some of the problems of having a mountain of data and thinking like, oh, good, like now we can show you know, that fossil fuels are terrible. And and so we've tried to make the site kind of engaging and different and have these radical contrasts that make people think, you know, how can a, a lobbyist for a ski resort also be lobbying for a gas company that's causing global warming and causing the snow to melt? Or, you know, on some of these pages we have you know pictures of fracking pads or canadian tar sands fields or polluted beaches but on other uh, pages we have you know pictures of concert halls for pennsylvania it's the it's the ravishing red interior of the kimmel center because their lobbyist also works for an oil and gas company and so it's those kind of contrasts where we're we're trying to to tell a story about how completely crazy this lobbying system is, and you have these different interests all being represented by the same people or the same firm who aren't just sort of incompatible, like they are absolutely inimical with with each other, which is to say the schools and young people and communities being harmed by the, the climate crisis.